this morning, please, to the book of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. It's a very familiar chapter, I'm sure, to all of you, and you understand what has transpired up to this point, that God has delivered the Israelites from Egyptian bondage, and so they are now en route to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, but they come to Mount Sinai, and of course there, as God speaks to Moses, he says in verse 1, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Rather than going into the history of uh, these verses, I'm going to get right to the point and uh, and mention how it relates to us today because so many times we look at something like this and we think well it's just an old outdated historical document that was you know was good for its day but really has no no meaning for us today and we couldn't be more wrong uh, about that we live in a world that is corrupt and confused with many problems with great needs and that doesn't surprise anyone. We're all very much aware of that. We all know that it should be and it could be better than what it is. And yet in spite of our efforts, it just keeps getting worse and worse every year. And so the question is, why? Why is it with all of the religion, with all of the politics, with all of the money that is spent on improving society, why is it that things just keep unraveling? It just keeps, as Paul said, getting worse and worse. Well, the problem is that we seldom ever get to the heart of the problem. We spend all of our time and effort dealing with the fruit rather than the root of the problem. And so the question is then, what is the primary problem? What is the root of all of our problems? What is the most common sin? Now, after what I recently preached uh, about the series on pride, no doubt someone would say, well, the primary sin is pride, and there, there's a sense in which that is true. But even though that is right, it goes hand in hand with what I'm preaching about this morning you could say that man's primary problem is man. And that goes all of the way back to the fall. You know, we, we look back there and see how that things begin to unravel as soon as man disobeyed God. And, and so that takes us back to the, to the beginning. But uh, now the question arises, well, what is the solution if the if man's problem is man, what is the solution to the problems that we have today? Well, God has the solution, and God is the solution. He has the solution. He is the solution. But if, if we're going to see our most basic need, we have to consider our first and our great responsibility, and that is exactly what we see in verse 3, he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So as we look back to man's beginning, and it could not have been more wonderful to think about the setting in which God had placed Adam and Eve. He had created them in his own image. And the purpose for the creature was to glorify the Creator. And yet he failed. Rather than obeying God, he rebelled against God. That changed everything. And worst of all, he died spiritually. And suddenly the sweet communion that they had enjoyed with God on a continuous basis, that sweet communion was broken. And now they are separated from God, spiritually disconnected from God. And that's why we often say that now we're living in an upside-down world, just the opposite of what it ought to be, because in his fallen condition, the natural man is blind to the position that he's in. And in Romans chapter 1, it's a clear picture of that. 
when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but they became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. And it goes on and mentions the horrible, terrible sins of mankind, all because that even though God had given all of the evidence of His existence, man denied that very thing, and in the place of God, man stepped in and basically made himself his own God. And here we see why many people deny the very existence of God. They don't deny it because the evidence isn't there. The evidence is there in creation. I mean, it's obvious whenever you look at the creation, there must be a creator when you look at how intricate that things are, whether it's the human body or, or the stars in the sky or whatever it is, there, there must be a designer. It didn't just happen. I have this Timex watch on here. It takes a licking and keeps on ticking. I haven't found anything any better, so I keep buying those Timex watches, and they, they work just fine. But uh, there is no way that if you disassemble that, and had all of the various parts in a drawer at home, that over time that all of those parts would just magically come together and make a watch. It, it can't happen. There must be a creator. All of that evidence is there, and yet there are those who refuse to believe that there is a real God, and the reason they refuse is because they choose to believe. In other words, it's their way of saying, I wish there wasn't a God. That's what they really want. At least they do not want a God to which they are accountable. And so consequently, man creates a God in his own image, and he worships the creature rather than the creator. We're intent on pleasing ourselves rather than pleasing God or anyone else. So with that in mind, I want you to think about this matter of making self to be your God. And it can happen, and it does happen over and over. Now, first of all, we need to consider the circumstances here, the circumstances of the world in which we live. And uh, certain parts of the world are very different than other parts. Take up, you know, up, up in the Ozarks where I live, there are a lot of... The Ozark Mountains, as they call them, and they're really not mountains compared to, to the Rocky Mountains. There's a big difference, but, uh, but they're beautiful hills, sparkling streams, and you get down here in different parts of Texas, and, well, you just get kind of a mixture of everything. So the geographical, the geographical location changes the landscape drastically, but people are different. Wherever, wherever you go, people are different. It might be a difference in the color of their skin. It might be a difference in their culture. But people are different. But there's one thing that is common wherever you go, and that is the fact that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And man's original sin was what? Well, it was to trust himself rather than God. The idea was that without God's restraint on us, we can improve ourselves. You don't read that in so many words, but you do read that in the temptation that, that they would what? That they would be as gods, knowing good and evil. And in the mind of, of Eve, she's thinking, well, God is shortchanging us. We can be as gods. We don't have to depend upon the one that created us. We can make the rules. We can run the show. We can do what we want to do. And that is exactly what happened. They made the choice to not trust, not obey, and not love the true God that had created them. And that decision affected all of mankind for all time. And that's why people around the world, wherever you go, You'll find people that are religious. It's just in their nature for them to be religious. And their most common object of worship is self. 
They would admit to that. They don't even think of, of being self-worshippers. They don't think of themselves in the terms that I am God. They wouldn't say that. Most of them wouldn't anyway. But based on their attitude and actions, that is exactly the way God perceives them because it's as though they have bumped God off of the throne and that they are occupying the throne of their heart and they are the ones that are making the decisions on what they're going to do. A few years ago, I wrote an article entitled The, the Give Me Generation. I believe that was an apt description of the generation in which we live. Give me, give me, give me. Now, a better, maybe a better definition would be the selfie generation. Do you realize in 2013, the word selfie was voted the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year? Think about that, selfie. Why? Because we are obsessed with ourselves. Webster Dictionary defines self-worship like this. It says it is extravagant admiration for or devotion to oneself. And I don't care where you go in the world, that is exactly what you see. Extravagant admiration or devotion to oneself. We see that everywhere we go today. We've become a nation of hedonists and, and self-worshippers. Our focus is on self. That's why we keep hearing words like self-worth, self-esteem, self-love. You're worth it. Uh, we, we hear those words bandied about all of the time. In fact, we hear even preachers Get up and make statements like, well, you've got to love yourself before you can really love anyone else. You know, you owe it to yourself to love yourself. And, and I've heard Baptist preachers that were stupid enough to say something like that. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is exactly what our problem is today. We think we're worth it. Some way or another, we've got it in our mind that we ought to love and honor ourselves. And that is exactly what the social media, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is, it is so popular because it gives people a platform to promote themselves. Boy, the narcissist, man, they love that, don't they? That has become the new norm today. People that are in love with themselves and want to promote themselves and they're going to get their voice out there and they're going to make their views known and, and speak as though they are experts on everything. Like one story I read about that it was a cruise and there's this one poor fellow sitting there and looked like he was might near dead and he had the sniffles and looked like a fever and just looked miserable. And this other woman sitting over there, much younger and all dolled up, you know, sitting out there on the deck of the cruise ship. And she said, uh, what you need to do is go to your cabin. You need to, you need to take some aspirin. You need to take and put some Vicks all over. You need to wrap up in a blanket and you need to sweat yourself out. She said, I know I'm an actress. He said, thank you, ma'am, for your advice, but I'm a doctor. <laughs> We've got all of these people trying to give advice on, what the, on how to fix the problem, and they have no idea what they're really talking about, you see. And we hear it even from the pulpits today in things related to where our love ought to be focused. And the great commandment is what? We love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul, all of our mind. And the second's like that, that we love others as ourselves. And when it says that, it's not telling us to love ourselves. It's presuming that we do, that we're to care for others the way that we care for ourselves. What a different world it would be. But under the circumstances, all being sinners and all having that propensity to promote ourselves and to, and to do our best to please ourselves and to win the admiration of others, that's the world that we live in. And yet we're faced with this command, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
That does two major things. Number one, it restricts the object of our worship. We're not free to just worship as we choose. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I like what the little boy said in, in class, and of course, most of the time in school they're taught, they, they don't talk about the Bible, of course, that would be taboo to bring that up, to quote a scripture. But some way or another, the class got to discussing things about religion. And this one little boy spoke up and uh, he said, well, I, I, I just believe there's only one God. So the teacher knew that, boy, I've got to get, I get, get on top of this and put a stop to that because that, that sure couldn't be true. There's different gods and different ways to worship. And she said to little Johnny or whatever his name was, why do you believe that? And he said, well, because the Bible says he inhabiteth heaven and earth. And he said there couldn't be any room for anybody else. No room for another God. And that's true. That little boy had it figured out. There is only one God. And so our worship is to be restricted to God Himself. Keep in mind, they've just been delivered from Egypt where they had over 2,000 gods. They worshipped rivers. They worshipped animals. They worshipped fish. They worshipped planets and the stars. And they worshipped people. And it was this concept of just one God that set Judaism apart from all of the religions of the world. They were the only ones to embrace that belief. That's why they were hated and despised. They stood up as it were in the face of all of the other nations and said there is only one true and living God. And they were hated as a result of it. And to this day, the same thing is true. There is only one God, and our worship is restricted to that one object, God alone. But secondly, when we think about this command, it obviously requires knowledge, because before there can be any allegiance to God, there has to be affection for God and for that to happen, there must be an awareness of God. Only by knowing God and what God requires can we ever really truly pledge our allegiance to Him. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 23 says, Thus saith the Lord, so you know that what He's about to say is important. And here it is. This is what the Lord said. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. There has to be this knowledge of God. When I say that, I'm not talking about just our intellectual assent to historical fact. I'm not talking about just admitting that there is a God. It's much more to it than that. I'm talking about knowing God personally. And that's why he says, don't let the wise man glory, you know, in, in his great wisdom or the rich man and his riches or any of these things that we hold so dear but if you're going to boast about something let it be the fact that you understand and know that God is who he is that's what God requires and there's no need for us to be confused because God has revealed himself as I said in creation he's revealed himself in the word of God so nobody has to wonder about what God demands and what God deserves. And yet, and yet there are many who are ignorant or inconsiderate of God. Think about those, you know, that worshiped the heathen gods back in those days. And those that worshiped Baal, they considered it an act of worship to go to the, to the temple, their temple, and engage with the temple prostitutes. 
Can you imagine someone's mind who is so warped, is so distorted, so depraved? Well, honey, I got to get up early this morning and go worship, which means go down there and have sex with the prostitutes at the temple. A lot of folks be all for that, you know. The world could, you know, the world could sell people on that idea unless someone comes along and says, oh yeah, but that would violate the standard of God's Word. When we ignore God's Word as the only perfect standard for our conduct, we leave ourselves in a position without any sure guide of anything. It's a free-for-all. And everyone just does that which is right in their own eyes. Not only does it require knowledge, but it rules out idolatry. Keep in mind now that idolatry might be something that is external. There are those that, uh, that chisel out of stone idols that they, that they worship. Idols that are handed down from one generation to another throughout the years. So it can be an external thing. But for the most part, idolatry is something that is internal. It might be something that is related to our possessions. In other words, that we put material things ahead of God. I think Lot made that mistake, don't you? When he looked out and saw the well-watered plains of Sodom and he said, you know, I'm going to go in that direction, you know. Boy, that, that'll be good for business. I can raise my cattle. Boy, I'll, I'll, I'll be wealthy. And that's how he ended up where he was. Instead of him inquiring of God where he ought to go, he based his decision upon what he felt was best for himself in regards to possessions, in regards to material things. And that still goes on today. That people that put material things ahead of what they know God would have them to do. Rather than obeying God, their philosophy is I'm going to build more and greater and bigger barns. Just like the fool there in the New Testament did. The Lord reminded him, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. With others it's not possessions, it's maybe a project. By that I mean it could be a hobby. It could even be some social project that they're involved in. It could be something that is totally, absolutely, in and of itself, that is sinless. Nothing wrong with it. And yet it becomes their God when it occupies the place in their heart that belongs only to the true and the living God. And that happens all of the time. There are people that have made bass fishing, they've made that their God. There are other people, it might be some other hobby that they have. But instead of doing what God would have them to do, they use all of their time and their talent and their treasure and invest everything in some particular hobby. Or as I said, maybe some social project. Might be the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, or 411 other things. But something that they feel like this would be a good investment of my time. This would be something, you know, I'll be a big brother to someone and I'll help them. So they invest their lives in some social project that seemingly is well and good. But, but it becomes a God in that all of a sudden they're using their time and talent that God gave them for something besides Him. It could be that their form of idolatry has to do with people. Children can idolize, they can idolize their own, or parents can idolize their own children. I'll never forget preaching in a place called Walnut Grove, Missouri. In fact, it happens to be uh, where a lot of my ancestors came from. And I was invited to preach a revival meeting there. And while I was there, one of the families, a man and a wife, they were way up in years, and they invited me over to their home. And the first thing before we ate or anything else they wanted to show me was their son's room. Their son had been killed in the service. And, uh, 
And boy, they had kept everything pristine there in his room, just like it was. And it so happened that this, this son was to be the next bass singer of the most popular gospel quartet in America. And as soon as he got back from the service, it had already been planned out and everything. J.D. Sumner was moving on. This is the kid that was taking J.D. Sumner's place. And he got killed. And that family cried and cried. And this is after several years, mind you. And I can understand that. But they had become so wrapped up in that. It's all they could think about. Listen, I know Jesus wept, and I know there's a time to grieve, but there's also a time to live and to move on. You, you cannot just stop living because you've gone through some traumatic experience in your life. I was preaching a revival meeting in Kansas City, Missouri, years ago, and uh, I went to the pastor's house. He invited me over there, and uh, so uh, this guy had... Uh, was a graduate of the school where J. Frank Norris, and if, being from Texas, you've heard of J. Frank Norris, probably the most famous Baptist ever from Texas, and, and a great preacher. I'm not belittling him. But every day, all day, rather than us going out and knocking on doors and witnessing to people, rather than us praying, every day he had these sermons recorded by him, and it was... It was on the old old vinyl disc type sermons. And, and all he wanted to do was sit there and play those over and over and over, sit there and cry and talk about the old days. I'm telling you, if, I, if anybody ever idolized a, a preacher or another person, to me, that was a perfect picture of it. It can happen, I'm telling you. When we allow our affection for people, for possessions, for projects, or whatever it is, it might be some pleasure. And the God of amusement, especially here in America, has captivated millions of people. They assemble in their temples. Oh, we call them arenas and we call them stadiums, but every week they assemble there to worship their God. They can't get enough of it then, so all week long they watch it on ESPN, hanging on every word, watching every box score. They live, they live as it were for the enjoyment of a particular sport. But I think most of all it boils down to this. The main idolatry has to do with our personal pride because we can make a God out of anything but self is the most common. You know, we, we, not only are we not to make an idol for ourselves, we're not to make an idol of ourselves. And whenever we exalt self above God, remember that was the chief sin there in the Garden of Eden, putting self before God, that is the most common form of religion today. People that put self-interest above everything else. And strangely enough, the loneliest, most miserable people on earth are those who are focused on themselves. And regardless of what you do, you can't make them happy very long because there's no way to please that incessant craving that they have to be admired and to, and to get whatever it is that pleases them. And it's a certain path to self-destruction. You know, while we debate about different matters of styles of worship, as a book came out a few years ago, in fact, several books, but this particular book was entitled Worship Wars. There were literally wars, as it were, in, in, in a sense, being waged between churches because of the different styles of, of worship. Some of, some of them, and to this very day, they despise any contemporary music. I had one dear preacher friend that years ago came to our Bible conference Sure enough, we had drums and we had guitars and he never came back. 
Never invited me for another to preach another revival meeting. Never had a word to say to me after that. Because in his mind, I've become one of those liberal preachers for allowing something like that to happen. So you've got all of these people arguing about different styles of worship. And, and while they're doing that, they're missing the primary point of the whole thing. Because while there are many different ideas about how to worship, the important thing is the object of our worship, who we worship. That's the most important thing in all of life. Now, not only does this restrict the object of our worship and require knowledge and rule out idolatry, it reveals something. It reveals two main things. Number one, it reveals what you trust. Your trust is misplaced if it is in anything or anyone other than God Himself. And man trusting man is the highest form of insanity. And over and over again, God warns us about that. Read Jeremiah chapter 17 whenever you get home. For man to trust man, we could not be more foolish. Whether the, whether the trust is in somebody else or whether it's in you, it is misplaced. Who do you trust? Adam and Eve that day made a decision. We're not going to trust God. We're going to trust our own judgment. But the second part is what you treasure. It reveals what you treasure. By that I mean whatever you value, whatever you love. We live in a day where, as Paul says, men shall be lovers of themselves rather than God. Have you ever heard about the God complex? Generally, that phrase is used in reference to doctors. Doctors who have what is known as a God complex because, you know, in, in their mind, they can, they can just work wonders and what have you. That all the rest of us, we're just mere mortals. That's the way, that's a God complex. But it's also has a label, an official label as narcissistic personality disorder. And here's the definition. I want it word for word so you'll get it. And I want you to think about it. The narcissistic personality disorder is this. I quote, It is a mental disorder characterized by an inflated sense of self-importance, entitlement, and a deep need for admiration and an alarming lack of empathy for other people. Do you realize that I, that describes almost the whole world? And if you'll really be honest about it, you'd have to say, good night, that describes most Baptists. Just take that apart word by word and phrase by phrase. And that's where we're at today. Rather than having God as our object of worship, we're just kidding ourselves to say that we worship the Lord our God and Him only because when it comes to our actions so many times, we're just fooling ourselves. The vast majority of people on earth, regardless of the formalities, regardless of the rituals and the traditions that they follow, when you get down to the bare bones facts, it's all about them pleasing themselves and wanting admiration and their determination to get what they want and having no empathy whatsoever for other people. You see, there's that natural tendency that they want to be God. They deny the charge, but attitude and actions proves that I'm telling the truth. That describes why the world is in the mess that it's in. Let me tell you something. Until the day you die, this is going to be a problem area. I know you're thinking, well, Brother Stone, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. That might be true. But I'm telling you, there's always that temptation 
for us in certain areas of our life to play the part of God. And that's why there is this struggle that goes on within us. The struggle that Paul talked about there in Romans chapter number 7. The struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And maybe you're thinking, well, I, 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 don't, I don't, whatever you're talking about, preacher, I don't have that. Then you need to get saved. I mean, I didn't have any struggle back before I was saved. I didn't worry about the sins I committed. I didn't see anything wrong with that. I remember going to a Christmas party with somebody that I worked with, and Bev and I got up there to the door, and I had the fifth of whiskey in my hand. You know, I thought, y'all bring something, so I brought a fifth of whiskey, and boy, that woman stopped me at the door and right, led me, read me the riot act and told me, you're not bringing that stuff in our house. I felt like saying, lady, I work with your husband every day. I can tell you a lot of things about your husband, but I won't. But I respected her wishes, but I didn't see anything wrong with that. You see, you see an unsaved person, they, they, don't have that, they don't have that conflict, that struggle going on within them. But the moment you receive Christ as your Savior, there's going to be that struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And it'll exist until you leave this world. So, what's the cure for all of this? It all raises a question, you know, or it does for me. Why would God give a command like this to a people like us? Why, why would He even do that? And I say that because God knows all things, and God knew from the very beginning that he's giving us a command that we're not going to be able to keep. Why would he do that? Surely there was a reason. And certainly God didn't make a mistake. And where people really get confused is, is when they get the idea that God gave us the Ten Commandments so that if we'll do our best to keep them, whatever that is, that'll get us to heaven. God will be pleased with our attempt and God will let us into his heaven. But here's what the Bible says. It says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. You see, by faith, not by works. The law was never intended to save anybody. And you might be good in the eyes of man. You might think that you're good. Others might think you're good. They'll cast their vote for you. But in the eyes of God, you are guilty. You have violated God's standard of righteousness. Thankfully, the gospel comes along, you know, and it tells us how that we can be reconciled to God, but it's through Christ, and it's by grace, through faith in Him. You see, religion is simply a, an imitation of God, and it always leads us to disappointment. The only thing that is going to bring real, true satisfaction in your life is intimacy with God, and that's possible only through Christ. And again, I can almost guarantee you right now, there's some folks that are thinking, you know, I've been saved and so the, the problem is solved. I, you know, preacher, you, you need to be preaching this to a, a bunch of unsaved people and showing them, you know, how that they need to be saved. I, I wish some preachers would wake up to that. And you hear these preachers on national TV talking about, well, I don't preach on sin anymore. Everybody knows they're a sinner. No, they don't. They don't have any idea. They don't have a clue, evidently. Our text is the first commandment for a good reason. Because this is the bare-bone, basic, most fundamental issue. And everything else flows out of this. Because when we fail here, we fail altogether. Now, too many times we assume and we even assert that everything, everything's good between me and God, you know. Don't have a problem. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. No problem with God. But is there anybody that can really honestly say, 
that I seek to please and glorify God in absolutely everything I do all of the time? Think about it. In all that you do, you seek to glorify God. You want to please God. And, and you feel exactly like that. And you try to do that all of the time in your life. Now remember, God knows the truth. You can say whatever you want to say, but God knows the truth. The question is, who is ruling on the throne of your heart? Who is in control of your affections, your mind, and your will, and your emotions? None of us like to think of ourselves as idolaters. Well, we would we'd never seemingly confess to something like that. And yet many who fail to see themselves as committing the sin of idolatry turn right around, violate God's commandments, and then think nothing about it. Have you ever read what the Bible says about liars? It has a lot to say about liars. You know, boy, we, we, look at the, we look at the list of various sins, and man, there are some of those that are, you know, in our mind that are so taboo that, boy, anybody that does that is dirty, rotten scum. They're going to go to hell for sure. And you might be right about that, but they'll be right there along with the liars. And yet, the average person treats lying like it's no really big deal. A lot of times, you know, we're guilty of lying even when we sing a song. We have, you know, I surrender all. I wonder what God thinks about that. Do you reckon God is tuned in and listening whenever we say, I surrender all? We have to give an account for every word we speak. And how are you doing when it comes to that last commandment down there? It says, thou shalt not covet. Oh, wow. Do I really need to just keep making a list of sin until finally I hit on your sin? Really consider what I'm saying? Can you honestly say that the Holy Spirit hasn't brought something to your attention? I, I realize for some people it seems like it's... Not really a big deal. Because after all, I'm only human. We all tell a fib now and then. And we all covet things. That's, well, yeah. Okay, let's say we all do. And I expect we all do on occasion. And that's just the point. The point is, is what is our attitude and how do we, how do we act whenever we do know that we have violated some righteous rule that God has given to us. We can pretend that it's no big deal, but it is with God because He says I, He is a jealous God. He's a jealous God because He loves you. He's a jealous God because He's jealous of His glory and He'll not share it with another. We need to have the attitude of the songwriter who said, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from its throne and worship only thee. Here's the question. Have I allowed something, anything, to occupy the throne of my heart other than God? I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not saying that you are just living your life habitually out of the will of God. I'm talking about maybe it's something happened before you got to church this morning. That snarly attitude that you had toward your husband or your wife. That fib that you told to somebody or whatever it is. It might have to do with something that has transpired while you've been here in this service. I don't know. But I do know that all of us ought to examine our hearts on a regular basis 
And all of us ought to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit speaking to us. And to do that in, in an intelligent way, we need to think about the traits of a person whose heart is right with God. I'd be lying if I stood up here and told you that, that ever since the day I got saved, I've never told a lie, I've never coveted anything, I've never sinned anything. That'd be a lie. You're smart enough to know that would be a lie. But hopefully that's not the manner of your life. So what are the traits? How can I intelligently examine my heart right here, right now, this morning? Let me help you out with that. Here are the traits of a person whose heart is right with God. Number one, there's going to be undivided affection for God. Undivided. In other words, my love for God's not going to, not going to be on the same level, you know, as the way I love God. Something else in the world. There's going to be an undivided affection for God. There will be an undisturbed attention on God. Need I say it again? Looking unto Jesus. And there are times in my life I've allowed something to disturb my attention from God. It might be a trial that I'm going through. It might be a temptation. Whatever it is, I've allowed something to momentarily divert my attention away from God and onto, onto something else. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. And we need to, we need to be ready to deal with it when it does. Then there, there will be an unbroken adoration of God. Does not the Bible talk about us offering Him the fruit of our lips continually? That is that we are to praise Him nonstop. And that's what I mean by unbroken adoration. There are times in my life I know I've been so worried and fretful and disturbed by some problem in my life that I'm not even thinking about praising God and shame on me. Then there's unending appreciation for God. God forbid that we let ourselves even for a moment not appreciate what God's doing in our life. And there will be unswerving allegiance to God. None of us Obey God perfectly. Even though we're saved, even though we love God more than we love anything else, there are times in our life that things upset the balance of things to where all of a sudden it's as though we have crowded God off the throne of our heart and we stepped on with an attitude that I'll take it from here. This is what I want to do today. Isn't it true that we, uh, that we put ourselves in God's place whenever we disobey God's commandments and we do what we desire instead of what God deserves? Is that the truth or not? And common sense says, you know, that we're guilty and yet we just, well, we pretend that we're not. We pretend and we can see it by our lack of response. And it's clear that there should be that what is actually a serious sin, we treat sometimes as though it's just a minor infraction. Boy, we walk out of church with our head held high, just like all is well with our soul. I don't know who we think we're fooling, but it's not God. So many times we treat others like the scum of the earth. Did you, you realize the Bible even talks about the husband and wife relationship and, and a bitter, angry spirit? You can have an argument with your wife or husband on the way to church, and, and I promise you, if you don't in some way get that resolved, you're not going to be able to worship God in spirit and truth. It will hinder you. And when it hinders you, it becomes a hindrance to the church.
happening to us. It comes across like I wish he'd just quit begging us to come forward and pray and this and that. Believe me, it's not, it's not that I get some credit out of it because you get your heart right with God. The thing that troubles me so much is having lived during a time where people in general were so much more sensitive to the preaching of God's Word. As I said, the first church I started and had so many people saved that first year, over one a week, uh, saved and baptized over 50 the very first year in a little country town. It wasn't due to my preaching. It was the fact that every time we would go a week and there wouldn't be a soul saved or moves made or people added to the church, I didn't have to say a word. As soon as the invitation was given, there'd be people all across the front down there crying and praying to God, Lord, what in the world is wrong? Nobody was saved today. We don't see that in churches anymore. What in God's name has happened to us? In the average Baptist church today, you can't get a hallelujah, amen, praise the Lord. People just sit there like a calf looking at a new gate, wanting to, waiting for the bell to ring so they can get out and go eat lunch. I'm not asking anybody to do anything for me. I'm asking you to do what you need to do for yourself. And if you for just a moment of time in any way have allowed something to bump God from the throne of your heart and you sat down there. You are guilty of violating that very first commandment. Because worship is not just something that happens when we sing and pray. You know what worship is? Romans chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Worship is a lifestyle. You can't turn it on and you can't turn it off. It's what we do with our lives. And if you can honestly say, preacher, the Spirit of God has not been dealing with me about anything whatsoever. As far as I know, all is well with my soul and I'm living, I'm living a life of communion with my Lord and there's nothing between me and Him. Praise God for that. But don't lie to yourself today. If there's something going on in your heart, it might be... It might be something that you've just allowed some trial to so overwhelm you that you've lost the joy of your salvation. It might be that your troubles and what have you have caused you to forget about God's blessings that you're no longer thankful and appreciative as you ought to be. And, and you need to deal with it. Not when you get home, you ought to deal with it. Don't we, we come to worship the Lord, now's the time to deal with it. And certainly if you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, you, you don't stand a chance. You don't stand a chance. None of us do. Without first of all coming to God through the Lord Jesus Christ because He, as He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Aren't you glad He made a way? He made a way for you. Will you take it this morning while we all stand? Tim's going to come and we're going to sing in just a moment. And I pray that just right now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed that you'll just let God examine your heart and speak to your heart. And if there's something there that you know, that you know you need to do business with God about, why don't you come? It might be you're here today and you just... Uh, the Holy Spirit is directing you, leading you that, to place your membership here. I, I don't know. We don't go out trying to recruit members, but I'll tell you, if the Spirit of God's leading you here, this is where you ought to be. Would you come while we sing this invitation?